Hebrews 4, verse 14 says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And Father, we just come now even to your throne of grace, thankful for the access given to us by the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, and that by your spirit, Lord, we can come to you. And so we ask for your help in this time as we open the word of God together, that it wouldn't just be a religious exercise, but truly, Lord, we would experience the power and the voice of your very spirit speaking things to our hearts, that Jesus, even as you taught when you were on this earth in the flesh, teach us this morning. Speak things to us and prepare our hearts as we partake of the Lord's Supper at the end of our time as well. We ask now for your spirit to minister, and we pray this expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, two very common mistakes that we can make sometimes, I think, as people are the following. One is that we kind of begin to develop, whether it's in an attitude of pride or kind of just self-sufficiency or maybe just an independent spirit, is we kind of begin to gravitate towards thinking that we don't need help. Uh, that we're kind of just an independent person, maybe by nature, and we don't need any help. And we kind of tend to be then that person who strives to do everything by ourselves, and to the danger of where we almost start sometimes almost thinking that we actually, to some degree, don't need God's help. Unless we get into kind of a crisis 911 situation, then we start to use God really as like a 911 line. And then we only reach out to the Lord when we just feel it's just something where we're in desperation. Now, I think the other mistake that we also can make sometimes is we recognize we need God's help. And sometimes we truly can sense I am in a pit. I'm in a bad spot. I'm in a time of need. I'm in a moment of desperation. And rather than go to God and plead for his help, instead, we just sit there in our pit and we don't go to God for help, and we just continue to just live in self-pity or struggle or striving when the reality is, is God is saying, I want to help. You don't have to stay in that perplexing, difficult spot. Come to me for help, and I'll get you out of that. I'll lift you through that. You know, the Bible tells us when our heart is overwhelmed that God can lead us to a place that is higher than ourselves. Uh, and we can make those kind of mistakes. Well, look, God's word states here what is true regarding human weakness to liberate our wrong perception. In fact, remember Jesus himself said in Matthew 14, he said, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The reality being that our text identifies for us, whether we want to admit it or not, verse 15 says it specifically, it refers to our, that means everybody's weaknesses. In other words, God states what's very clear, and that's this, everybody needs help. Doesn't matter who you are, everybody needs help as a human being. The good news is how God relates to us in our weaknesses, and that's he offers us help to deal with our weaknesses. The Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 40 in the Old Testament, God gives power to the weak. And say he gives power to those who are strong or think they can be strong, God gives power 
to the weak, to those who understand and recognize their weakness and need for God's help. Romans 8, 26 in the New Testament says the Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. And our text here we're going to look at this morning addresses this aspect of our personal weaknesses and also God's antidote. So it indicates the symptom, our weaknesses, and the antidote, which is God's help in our lives. Look at me in verse 14. He begins the writer by saying here, seeing then that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So the writer here wants to emphasize the superiority of Jesus as our great high priest. And understand to the Jew, to the Hebrew reader, which this was written to originally, this concept was crucial to them. This was a fundamental understanding in their spiritual background. The high priest, remember, was the highest ranking spiritual leader among the Jewish worship system of God's people. The Old Testament priests once served as helpful mediators between God and the people. And in that manner, in the Old Testament, they foreshadowed Jesus very clearly as a mediator between God and the people helping them in their spiritual worship lives. The priest really had a twofold responsibility. The priest represented God to the people. That is the high priest and the role of any priest for that matter as a mediator was basically to reflect to the people aspects of what God was like. So they were to be a representative of God to some degree to the people so they might understand God better. And also the priest represented the people before God as a mediator. That is, it was the role of the priest, and particularly all the more the high priest, to pray, to offer sacrifices in regards to their worship and their sin. In fact, the Bible tells us very clearly in uh, chapter 5, verse 1 through 3, if you just look at it, it says, Every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God. Notice that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also subject to, notice, weaknesses. That was the spiritual leaders. Because of this, he is required for the people, so also for himself, no sinless religious leaders in that day as in any day, to offer sacrifices for sins. So the high priest had this role of also representing the people before God and the different duties and responsibilities that he engaged in. So you can understand why the high priest was so important to the people. They were greatly dependent upon their high priest really for their spiritual lives and their worship experience. Now it's with that understanding, the Bible teaches us, the book of Hebrews indicates that the Lord Jesus in his ministry has now become the final the perfect great high priest once for all to a degree whereby that priestly ministry has basically been fulfilled and from God's perspective is no longer necessary because Christ himself is now our great high priest. And he now serves in that mediatory function behalf of God and humanity. And Jesus and his ministry does this for us in a much more wonderful way is what the writer is going to describe here. Because really understand, human priests had one very clear weakness. They died, right? So you could have a priest or a great high priest and he did a great job for a while. Maybe the people loved him and he was really helpful spiritually. But if he had no other weaknesses, he had this weakness. Eventually he died. And then he couldn't help the people anymore. So that was a great limitation. 
the glorious thing about Jesus as our great high priest is Jesus lives forever. That's what the writer of Hebrews is going to say in chapter 7, that our great high priest, Jesus, he ever liveth to make intercession for us. He's risen from the dead and he never dies. He remains the same. That's why 1 Timothy 2 says there's one mediator between God and man and it's the man Christ Jesus. So he's much more capable to help us in our relationship with God, in dealing with our sins and helping us in our worship lives. And the writer wants to point out the wonderful benefits of trusting Jesus as our great high priest in the ministry that he perpetually performs for us in our lives. The high priest, again, as that highest spiritual office, was not just anyone in the days of Israel. Understand, remember from the Old Testament perspective, as he's developing this idea of Jesus becoming now a great high priest, the Old Testament high priest could not just be anyone. You couldn't candidate for the job. You couldn't try and work your way through the religious hierarchy. The high priest could only be a descendant of Aaron, which was God's chosen line. It was very exclusive. God very exclusively chose who the high priest would be. Well, he's going to say, look, to a much greater degree, Jesus has a much greater qualification because Jesus wasn't a descendant of Aaron. What does verse 14 say? Jesus, our great high priest, he's not a son of Aaron. He's what? The son of God. That's a much greater qualification. Our great high priest is the actual son of God himself. He refers to Jesus, the son of God, which speaks of Jesus's deity and his humanity in the same breath. The name Jesus or Jehovah is salvation speaks of how Jesus had a human nature. Hebrews chapter two tells us that a few chapters back by saying Hebrews chapter two, verse 17. Therefore, in all things, Jesus had to be made like his brethren, human brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest to things pertaining to God to make propitiation or atonement for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's now able to aid those who are tempted. So Jesus, as God became man, that was his humanity and his name, Jehovah is salvation. But he also retained and always was divinity and deity because it says here claiming that he was the son of God. He was God living in human flesh. Now, again, with that understanding, Unlike any human high priest, Jesus is a much better high priest because Jesus had both humanity and deity, which makes him a perfect mediator because he was completely in touch with divinity and completely in touch with humanity to be able to serve as a mediator between God and divinity and humanity upon the earth as he became a man. And as a result, he's a much more effective great high priest on our behalf. He's a much greater high priest simply in the area even of revelation because unlike those human high priests who to the best of their ability, what they understood about God, they sought to reveal to God, uh, to other people about God. So again, the high priest was limited. He tried to reveal God to the people. He tried to teach the people about God, but he could only pass on what he himself knew about God. So his ability to give revelation of God was limited. In Jesus' situation as the great and greatest high priest, his ability to give revelation of God is unlimited because he wasn't just sharing with people what he knew about God. He was God. He was God actually in human flesh by his very life and his words revealing what God was like to the people, showing the deity through his very life as he lived among us. That's why Jesus in John 14, when they asked him, 
they asked him, show us the father. And in other words, show us God. And Jesus said, Philip, have I been with you so long that you asked to say, show us the father? And then he went on to say there, he who has seen me has seen the father. In other words, Philip, you're asking to see God. You've been looking at God. Everything about me is a revelation of what God is truly like in how I behave and what I do and don't do, what I say, what I care about, what matters to me. So Jesus was the full revelation of God, which again makes him a much greater high priest in revelation. He's also a much greater high priest in regards to the ability to approach God. Again, remember what was part of the role of the great high priest in the days of Israel? The high priest had a unique and distinct role in that he could enter what? Into the holy of holies, but he only could do it one time a year. But one time a year, he could go past that first room in the temple or tabernacle into the secondary room, the Holy of Holies or Most Holy Place, where the presence of God, remember, was manifested on earth among the people. And one time a year, the high priest and the high priest alone, with the blood of atonement, could go through that veil and into the Holy of Holies there as a mediator to make atonement for the sins of the people. So he passed through that sacred veil that no one else could pass through directly into the presence of God, and he got to do it one time a year. That's a very limited access to God. Jesus, notice, what does our verse say here? It says, Jesus, our great high priest, who has passed through what? The heavens. In other words, Jesus has passed through the atmospheric heavens, the stellar heavens and into the very eternal heavens into the literal presence of God for us. And Jesus has direct and complete access to the presence of God, which makes Jesus much greater and better because he brings the perfect blood of his own atoning sacrifice, not the blood of a lamb that was sacrificed perpetually every year, but his perfect blood sacrifice of his own life on the cross. And he is in the presence of God literally, continually, and constantly ministering in the presence of the very heavenly father on our behalf. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews later on, Hebrews 9, 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, Jesus entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. It then tells us in Hebrews 10, and every high priest stands ministering daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, referring to Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. See, this is the reason why the writer says, after proclaiming Jesus as our great high priest, the end of verse 14, let us, therefore, he says, hold fast to our confession. In other words, he's saying, look, in light of who Jesus is, no matter what happens in your life, don't ever let go of Jesus. Don't ever let go of your faith and confidence in Jesus. You may lose confidence in everything else, but don't ever let go of your trust and confidence in Jesus. You keep clinging to Jesus and relying upon Jesus. Look, have you let things recently, maybe in your earthly journey and difficulties and challenges, begin to interfere with your connection to Jesus Christ? Let me encourage you, put an end to that. Don't let anything, I don't care what it is, political things, pandemic things, people things, problem things, I don't care what it is, don't let anything interfere with you holding on to your eternal 
confession of trust and reliance and worship of Jesus Christ. That is the most valuable thing that you have. So he says, look, if we're going to hold on to anything, let's hold on to Jesus because of the great value he brings to us in our spiritual and eternal lives. He goes on, verse 15, to say, for we do not have a high priest, notice, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as he are, yet without sin. So he continues to emphasize here the superiority of Jesus as our great high priest, showing here that Jesus is both sinless as well as sympathetic at the same time. The first thing he points out in verse 15 is how Jesus was sinless, unlike any other high priest from the order of Aaron's descendants who had human weaknesses and still failed and sinned themselves. As we read, they had to offer sacrifices for their own sins. Jesus, it says, verse 15, our great high priest, it says, verse 15, he was without sin. That is, Jesus never failed. Jesus never gave in to human weakness. Jesus was sinless in the sense that he had no inherent sin from birth, and it's because he was born by the miraculous conception of the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin woman. See, if Jesus would have been born of two human parents, which let me say to you, that's why do not ever let anyone try and diminish the importance of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Our redemption is destroyed if Jesus was not born of a virgin. If Jesus was born of two human parents, like all the rest of us are as human beings, he would have inherited a sin nature and had inherent sin within himself, even as everyone else who's descended from Adam and Eve inherits a sin nature and is sinful by nature. Jesus was born differently. Jesus had a human mother, but God the Father was his father, which allowed him to be born as a unique person, being fully God and fully man. And because he wasn't conceived by two human parents naturally, he was born without an inherent sin nature like we have. That's important if he's going to make salvation available for all humanity. He had to be pure in every way without inherent sin. And more than that, he also never had any acquired sin. That is, Jesus himself never failed in the way he lived. He overcame every temptation perfectly. The writer declares here in this verse the sinless existence of the life of Christ, that he was without sin. The New Testament says, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that Jesus knew no sin. 1 John 3, 5 says, you know, he was manifested to take away our sins and in him there is no sin. Peter writing in 1 Peter 2 says, Jesus committed no sin. See, it is the absence of sin in Jesus's life that allows him to make perfect atonement for our sins that's acceptable for access into heaven. Heaven's a pure, perfect, righteous, and holy place. No person can get there. But Jesus lived out the life for us in his humanity of being without sin, having never committed sin, so that he could then satisfy the requirement for entrance into heaven, and that he also could take the punishment for our sin upon his life as as a perfect human being on our behalf. That's why, listen, that's why it's absolutely ludicrous to think there's any other way you could get yourself into heaven. Unless you can outperform Jesus, you're not getting to heaven. The only way to get to heaven is to acknowledge you are a great sinner and he alone is a great and the only savior because of what he did that we could never do in our humanity. That's why we cling to him. That's why we hold fast to Jesus as the anchor for our salvation. This is what makes him a much better high priest. 
But not only is he sinless, the writer says here in verse 15, he's also at the same time sympathetic towards us because he experienced temptation to sin because he faced human temptations. Verse 15 says we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted just as we are. Yet the difference is he never gave in to sin. He remained without sin. Again, understand, Jesus experienced everything in humanity that we experience as people, which makes him then sympathetic towards us as a savior and as our great high priest. Jesus experienced the weakness of a limited human body, which was subject to things like tiredness, exhaustion. You ever felt bone tired? Jesus knows what that feels like. He lived in a body of human flesh. Have you ever found yourself hurt and wounded deeply by other people? Jesus knows truly exactly what you're going through and what that feels like. He experienced betrayal. He experienced disappointments, letdown, being mistreated as a human being. Jesus experienced hunger and thirst and sadness and grief and loneliness and stress upon him. He experienced all of these things in his humanity. So in a sympathetic way, he doesn't look upon us as, what's the matter with you? What are you so weak for? He completely understands the struggles of the weakness of a human frame and humanity because he experienced it fully for us to have a greater understanding, to be sympathetic, to help us. And he experienced all points of temptation of sin against his life as well, just in an unfair, evil world, as well as the devil directly tempting him, as we see there in Luke chapter four. The difference is Jesus, as a man, never succumbed to temptation. He was tempted in all points and ways that we are as people, but the difference is I fail on occasion. Jesus never failed. He never caved in under the pressure. He continued to honor his father, God. He was always victorious under the pressure and temptation of sin, and he never yielded selfishly to sin's enticements like we do. He never selfishly fulfilled himself in a moment of weakness, it says in verse 15, he was in all points tempted as we are, yet remained without sin. However, through Jesus being successful in that way, that's also what makes him sympathetic towards us in every way. And the word sympathetic or sympathy means the ability to understand and relate to someone and therefore have compassion on their situation. And think of it this way. Truly, Only Jesus can be the most sympathetic person to help you and I with any of our human weaknesses. Only Jesus can. And the reason why is only someone who has fully resisted sin's temptation can know the full force of temptation. I mean, think about that. People who eventually give in to temptation or eventually at a certain point cave under pressure, they truly don't know the full extent of temptation. Jesus knows the full extent of every pressure, every challenge, and every temptation because he wrote it out all the way to the fullest extent and still never caved in. Some of us may cave in at 50%, 75%. Jesus took it all the way to 100% victorious. Took it to 100% victorious. Took it to 100% victorious. So he's experienced the fullness of pressures and temptation. That's why he can be completely sympathetic with whatever we're dealing with in our life as a human being to understand and to help us because of the incarnation living as a man. So it means Jesus is not angry and upset with why you struggle with your humanity from time to time. 
he fully understands the challenges and, and how it is hard and with help. He wants to be sympathetic and merciful to give us assistance, to even offer strength. That's remember why Hebrews 2 said he had to be made just like us so that he might be able to now aid us in our humanity, having lived and understood what all of those things were like, which means this this morning, perhaps maybe there is some sin in your life that's been robbing you of spiritual health. And you may be prone to think, well, I guess this sinful weakness is just how I'm going to always be. I guess this is just my fatal flaw. I'm always going to be controlled by this sin, or I'm always going to struggle with this. I'll never be able to overcome it and be victorious. I'll never get free or find victory. Can I say to you, if you are a Christian this morning, don't listen to that lie of your flesh. And don't listen to the deceptive voice of the devil, because the reality is you have to remember Jesus that same thing that you can't overcome, he victoriously beat it every single time. And through Jesus, as you come to Jesus, who isn't dead in a grave but alive, Jesus can say to you, I know that you and your human weakness cannot overcome that. But let me tell you some encouraging news. I face that same pressure and I beat it every single time. And through me, if you let me help you by my power, by my victory, I know how to defeat that sin. I know how to give victory over that temptation or that struggle or that human weakness. And through me, I can show you how to overcome it. I can help you to overcome it because I have overcome it. What a wonderful thing to realize that reality that Jesus says, I can aid and assist you. You don't have to live in constant defeat because I can give you victory. Because Jesus knows how to have victory in things that tend to defeat us, sometimes chronically and periodically. Well, considering all Jesus did, sitting in victory at the right hand of the Father for our help, he then says, verse 16, Let us therefore, in light of these things, come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So understanding the access, the clearance, the, the freedom to go to Christ and to go directly to the throne of God to experience help and find grace. Therefore, he says, we should be coming with repeated confidence and assurance to God's throne. What he's referring to here in verse 16, very obviously, the imagery is prayer. Speaking to God at his throne, hoping to get help from a powerful throne as a weak and beggarly servant to do things that we can't do for ourselves. This is the implication here. We've been given access and clearance to the most powerful ruling king that has ever, ever existed. I mean, just consider the, the analogy by way of illustration. Let's say, for example, if you wanted to approach okay, a, a king, or let's say if you wanted to approach the president of the United States of America, a pretty powerful individual who has the power to do great things on your behalf, they have a lot of power in that position from that place of rulership, from that place of a throne to some degree in a human level, if you had access to the president of the United States, that would be a pretty incredible thing. And let me say this. If you got access to the president of the United States, it would be rare and unique if you got five minutes in his presence. But can you consider there are some people that have pretty regular access, only a limited few, maybe family, but there are some people who have pretty routine access to the power of the president of the United States. Could you imagine if you had that? It'd be a pretty incredible. Or imagine if even more, they said, you know what? 
I know I'm the president. I even want you to come to me. Tony, whenever you have a problem, you don't even need clearance. I'm giving you clearance. I'm telling you as the president, you come to me whenever you want. In fact, I want to help you. There's no limitation to the power and resources of what I will do to help you. That'd be a pretty incredible opportunity. Look, we have access, not to the president. We have access to the king of kings, to the throne of God, to go directly to God himself and to get access for help and assistance in our times of need. Now, consider if somebody had that kind of access to the president and they neglected it. You'd be like, man, what are you, crazy? You have that kind of access to the president and you neglect it? But how much more crazy is it that we, as Christians, through the blood of Christ and what God's made available to us through what Jesus has done for us, that we have access to the throne of God and we neglect it? And we strive to fix things on our own and we struggle to deal with challenges on our own and we strive in the flesh to make things happen and, and, and we neglect access to God? We neglect taking advantage of that? This is why the writer says here, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. To come means continually and constantly. And when he says come boldly, he's not talking about coming irreverently. He's not talking about coming to God in a disrespectful or unappreciative way like a spoiled child. Nor is the writer implying that we come to God with boldness and we pray with boldness and treat God like he's a cosmic genie where we begin to pray in a manner where it's almost as we become irreverent, like we're demanding God do stuff for us. But that's not what the writer's talking about. When he says, let us come boldly, the language implies coming with incredible confidence, incredible assurance, because of the relationship we know that we have with God, because of what Jesus has done for us. One writer says, let us draw near or approach with confidence. That is, you don't have to wonder if it's okay or if you performed well enough today or last week to come directly to the throne of God, the throne of grace. Because of what Jesus did, it's okay. It's always okay. As long as you trust in what Christ did, you have direct access any hour of the day, any situation to go right to God's throne and to approach him. We know we have acceptance through Christ and we can come with confident faith whether we had the worst week or the best week. We can come continually because of what Jesus has done for us and we come through Jesus. Again, that'd be the same idea. You know, if, if I was the president, somebody married one of my daughters, well, they just got brought in the family because they married my daughter. Well, look, we're married to Jesus, and, and Jesus' father is the king of kings, and they rule and reign together. So we have direct access through relationship to come, and that's why he says, let us come confidently, boldly. How foolish and wasteful to live independent and strive to do things ourselves. That is the complete antithesis of what God wants for us. Also consider how God here by his Holy Spirit describes the throne of God in heaven. What does he call it? It's underlined in my Bible. It should be in yours. He calls it the throne of grace. What a great description of God's throne. Look, is God's throne a powerful, authoritative throne where if you rebel against it, you better be utterly terrified? Absolutely. That's a powerful throne. But by the same token, let it just marinate in your mind for a moment that the Holy Spirit of God describes the throne of God not as a throne of judgment, but a throne of grace. That's how God describes his throne. 
that it's a throne of grace. That is, grace pictures, pictures loving kindness and favor and help and blessing. God says, that's what my throne's like. My throne is a throne of grace, a throne where I want to give help and assistance and bless you and aid you and give you what you need to assist you. So the picture here is coming boldly, confidently, the throne of grace continually really is learning how, as God's children, to live dependently upon the Lord rather than always striving in the flesh while being a child of God. How sad would it be if the president watched his child struggle when he said, I'm the president, what are you doing? I'm, your dad's the president. How sad must it be for God with a throne of grace and all power to watch us strive at times rather than live dependently. God wants us to learn to ask of him and let him work. Not try and connive and make things happen ourselves, but instead, to rather than force and struggle and fail, to come to God in faith with confidence and say, Lord, I need help, I need assistance. And to know that we have access to that incredible throne of grace. And what's available to us? He says we can come to the throne of grace with confidence to obtain mercy. Everybody needs mercy because we all fail continuously. We have good days and bad days. Mercy's getting what we don't or not getting what we do deserve. So we can come to God with no matter what our situation, our failure, and God is ready to dispatch mercy to us when we fail in our lives. And not only that, sometimes we just feel overwhelmed, don't we, by pressures and things that we're going through. And it just feels like that we are just being crushed under something and we can come to God's throne of grace to obtain mercy in those situations. The idea is, God, please be merciful. And God gives us the restrained version. With his power, he, he, he's merciful in the way he gives us the restrained version so the, the burden and the pressure is held back. What a wonderful thing to be able to come to God and say, God, I am too weak for this. I need mercy. Please, God, be merciful. I just, I can't bear up under this anymore. Or to come to God when we fail and say, Lord, I've blown it, but I thank you that because of what Jesus did, his blood can forgive. And so God, have mercy upon me. I, I failed again. And I acknowledge it, Lord, and be merciful to me. And secondly, not only can we obtain mercy, but he says we also will find and discover, verse 16, that we can find grace to help in time of need. And we have many different types of needs in our lives. A need speaks of a lack of something that is required. It's the condition of requiring supply, help, or relief from outside of yourself. Look, perhaps this morning that describes your current situation. Maybe there's a lack in some way. Maybe there's a need that you're dealing with or some area that you feel helpless. He even describes here facing a time of need. We may find grace to help in time of need. Maybe in your life right now, you are in a time of need spiritually. Maybe there's a struggle for you or someone in your family, and there is a time of need that you're dealing with spiritually in your family in some way. Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe it's a circumstance or a financial time of need. Whatever it is, here's the good news. He says, go to that throne of grace and you can find grace to help with your time of need. God is more than enough abundant grace to help with that specific and unique need. No matter what we go through or how deep the need, the grace is available to help us navigate it and to be able to survive and persevere through it. 
or for God even to just pour out his grace and to enable us to survive through it. Or maybe we just feel like, Lord, I just don't know how to handle this. I've ever, never done this before, Lord. I, I feel so inadequate. He says, look, I've got grace to help you with that. I will give you the grace that you need to be able to accomplish what it is you're facing. The Lord's help and kindness and favor is available. John 1 says, from Jesus, we can receive grace upon grace. I love that. Grace upon grace. It's like the ocean waves that come up on the shore, right? One just follows right after the other, and they never stop, right? There's never a break in the ocean waves. No matter how many come, how... There's always another wave behind the one that just came. That's like God's grace, grace upon grace. And we can continually with confidence go to this throne of grace in our lives. But look, what we need to do is believe it and to act upon it and stop trying to strive in our flesh or, you know, be bummed out because of our own weaknesses, but instead to just embrace our human weaknesses, to know our limitations and to constantly take advantage of the incredible access that we have. To take to heart the reality of what the Holy Spirit has said to us, let us therefore come boldly to this throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's stand together, let's pray.